Uh, things I want to go over as we get started this evening, then we're going to watch a little f- video clip for about uh, 7 minutes and 42 seconds, and then we'll talk about the video clip. And, and then um, then we will get into into class. The video clip has nothing to do with class, but it's important, it's good, and if I wait till I get back from Israel, I, I won't remember it. Uh, announcements. Number one, Camp Arete continue prayers for the completion of the chapel and project leader. Jeff told me last week that the project leader is going to be uh, Bryce Birch. For those of you who don't know, Bryce is, has been a deacon at Preston City Bible Church and is vice president and webmaster for Dean Bible Ministries, and he's he's a great carpenter too, so he's going to take that over. Um, graduate recognition will be on Sunday, June the 3rd with a brief reception following. I think that means ice cream, cake, something like that, I'm sure. And uh, then on Sunday, July 1st, we're going to have a covered dish dinner here at the church and with a prayer meeting, prayer, prayer for our, our nation. And our nation certainly does need prayer. And we need to pray not only for our national political leaders, but I think we need to pray for our... Uh, National or for a lot of religious leaders, uh, <clears throat> one of our uh, avid listeners who has a little group that meets out in Bakersfield sent me a uh, article. Sends me a lot of different articles, and I was looking at this one, and just the opening uh, paragraph tells us how far we have slipped. About two hundred. This is uh, an AP article, uh, Dateline out of Sacramento. About 200 religious leaders from numerous denominations endorsed Governor Jerry Brown's proposed November tax initiative Thursday, saying they believe those who are blessed with riches should share them with the less fortunate. The way this needs to be written is that these religious leaders are now under the conviction that um, that the government it is the government's job to uh, legally steal money for those who are productive in society and transfer that money to those who are unproductive. And so these religious leaders are now all uh, complicit in theft, but they don't want to look at it that way. But that's exactly what it is. When you, somebody has the arrogance to say that the government has the right to, to, to determine how people who have become prosperous, how their uh, money should be spent. It just, the absurdities of it are beyond me. Well, now we all need to get back in fellowship, don't we? So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and uh, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we live in this great nation, even though today we are not what we once were. Because of our forefathers and because of the foundation this nation had, we have great potential, and there are many elements, many aspects, many segments of this society that are great. Father, we are thankful for the way that you have provided the freedoms that we have so that we can study your word and freely proclaim the truth of your word. And, Father, we recognize that the freedom that we have to teach the truth is a freedom that also gives others the freedom to teach error. And that is always uh, condemned in Scripture. That is, error is always condemned in the Scripture because it is only when the truth is based on your word that we can know what truth truly is. Father, as we study this evening, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word that we may understand the issues that we're covering and see how they relate to our own thinking, our own lives, and that we might continue to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to show this clip. Uh, It is a YouTube video clip called Cruel Logic. And uh, this was put together by a Christian uh, organization by someone who wrote this who really, truly understands one aspect of apologetics. And too often people don't always understand the dimensions of apologetics, but uh, the uh, apologetics really functions within any 
a gospel presentation. Anytime that we're talking to an unbeliever and they're asking questions uh, and we're answering them, that's apologetics. Apologetics merely means, as it is translated in uh, uh, 1 Peter 2.15, that we are to be ready to give an answer for to those who ask about the hope that is in us. Uh, one little observation you should have on that is that it's expected that your Christian life is so evident that people are going to ask you why you have hope, okay? And then you can answer that question. Now, this video is important because one of the tools in any discussion with someone who's an unbeliever, and I've had forms of this uh, many times, usually people squirm just like you're going to see in this video uh, because they don't like the implications or they don't want to admit the implications of this, but it's showing that um, rather than taking a defensive position on the gospel, it's taking an offensive position on the other person's view that they just really can't live consistently with how they think life should be. They, they throw out all these beliefs and then you just, just sit there and ask them questions and try to point out that they can't live consistently with what they seem to be affirming. This is a seven minutes or eight, almost eight minutes short and it is uh, a situation where, uh, a professor has, uh, <clears throat> taught on the uh, from his materialist atheistic uh, viewpoint, and a Christian is really pushing him to the limits of uh, of his viewpoint and showing that he can't live that way. And it's uh, it got some award, a bunch of awards are listed on the YouTube site. We'll probably post a link up on the website so you can uh, you can find it later on or send it out. Dr. Pomeranke. I heard your lecture tonight at the college on criminal biology. DNA, instinct, and aggression. It's a well thought out presentation, but a bit abstract. Too academic, if you ask me. <laughs> What I want to know is, have you ever really lived out your theory? Or are you content writing your papers inside your ivory tower, torturing your captive audience of students with your intellectual posturing? What do you want from me? I'm here to test your hypothesis. You're a sociobiologist, are you not? Yes. Well, in your lecture, you argued for the genetic origins of crime. Biology determines behavior. Well, I'd like to debate you on that. Only in this debate, the stakes are real. If you win, I let you go. If I win, that's part of the proposition. What proposition? The issue resolved. 
There is no valid reason why I should not kill you. Debating for the negative, Professor Pomeroy. <laughs> and for the affirmative, yours truly. You are going to kill me. <laughs> ah! Ah! I'll do anything, anything you say. Stimulus response. Please don't kill me. Give me one good reason. It's, it's illegal. Murder is illegal. You'll go to jail. I don't plan on being caught. But it's wrong to kill. Professor, don't go getting all moral on me. You said that our DNA determines our behavior. DNA has no morality. It's abnormal. Your DNA is abnormal. Abnormality has to do with statistical averages, Professor. Not right or wrong. Society agrees killing is wrong. Society is another word for statistical average. We're not all from the same gene pool. <laughs> but does it make it right? And it doesn't make it wrong. Our species won't survive if we allow killing. You mean you won't survive? I will. <laughs> Me in my DNA. You're a sick man. Your mind is diseased. Correction. Genetically determined man with a biological predisposition toward aggression. Killing is in my genes, all according to your theory. Which brings us back to the central question. If all that I am is genetically determined, why should I not in fact kill you when I am scientifically bound by my DNA to do so? Please, please put mercy. Take pity, I beg you. There's no mercy or pity in these genes. I'm a predator by nature. Please, I beg you, please. Beggars can't be choosers, Professor. No survival rate. And I think it's time you learn your lesson. Ideas, you see, have consequences. Yeah, now did you get the point on that? Okay, the point is you've got a sociobiologist professor who's saying everything is encoded in DNA. Whatever your behavior is, it's all biological. That's, bas that's basic Darwinism. And so this student is coming in, and he is going to press that to see if the professor when it really gets down to it, can live consistently with his belief. And when it's his life at stake, he can't. He says, he says, don't kill me, it's wrong. What do you mean by wrong? How can you, how you, you can claim something is wrong when whatever we do is just encoded in our DNA. It's neither right nor wrong, it's just the way we are. And then he says, well, society's against it. Or he says, um, it's abnormal. On what basis do you claim Something is normal or abnormal. That's just a statistical average. It has nothing to do with what should be or should not be. And he said, um, then he said, well, society's against it. Well, how, society, that's just another form of the statistical average argument. You have no basis on your position that all behavior, whether it's homosexuality or murder, aggression, all of this is encoded in the DNA. Then, then, the, then the professor says, well, have mercy on me. The guy says, well, mercy is not encoded in my DNA. 
you know, the position of the unbelieving world out there today is just this position that everything's material and everything's encoded in the DNA. There's no real personal responsibility. There's no soul. Everything's hardwired into your brain. And so nobody can be held uh, responsible for anything. That's why prisons are not there to punish people because they can't help it. They're there because they did something. We just want to try to modify their behavior a little bit. But that's a waste of time if you buy into a pure Darwinian view because there's a, there's no basis for uh, saying that something is wrong or right. You The only view that has a foundation for saying that there are absolute, there's absolute right and absolute wrong is Christianity. So this was a, I thought that was an interesting little dramatic uh, presentation to show that, that uh, when you push the unbeliever to his, where he's the one who's going to face the consequences of his decision, that he can't, can't live that way. He can't accept, uh, accept that he is constantly, every time he said anything, he was violating his own belief system. Well, it's a dramatic presentation. I think that's clear for people. But um, it, what's what's funny is I don't know why the sound was not clear on our speakers, Eddie, because I played it on my iPad and it was crystal clear. But I had trouble understanding this. So that's our speaker. We got we we need to readdress that if they're really that fuzzy. Well, I don't know. Most people in here captured the meaning. Well, it's just another way of expressing it. Okay. All right. Now we get into Acts 8. Acts 8. Um, put this over here. Okay. Acts 8. Now here's a question. So we talk about Simon now and salvation. When is belief not belief, or is, does, is belief ever, is uh, belief in Christ ever not belief in Christ? And that's really at the heart of this whole debate that, that is termed free grace versus lordship. Some people have said, well, free grace sounds like an, uh, you know, redundancy. Well, the infallible, inerrant Word of God sounds like a redundancy. We have to keep adding these adjectives for clarity because the uh, tactic of the enemy is always to change the meaning of words. That's why words are so important and why it's so so significant to uh, do about some of the people that are out there that uh, feel so uh, that it's their opportunity to be involved in these things who pour over textbooks with uh, magnifying glasses to find errors and to find uh, errors of omission as well as errors of commission. Often they find uh, where the battle is on vocabulary, how you form questions. For example, when I asked the question and phrased it the way I did, in the title slide, when is belief not belief, that sounds like I'm affirming that there is a time when belief could not be belief. I'm not, you know that. But it sort of sounds that way. How we state things and the words we use uh, tend to shift and shape the debate. And the debate is is belief in Jesus Christ for salvation the sole and necessary condition for salvation? Now, non-Christians have trouble with that because basically they want to do it their way. And it's an authority issue. It's an authority conflict. God says, I've got a plan for salvation and there's only one way. And non-Christians think that they're basically good enough. Uh, many Jews, Orthodox Jews, think somehow they can be good enough when you have numerous passages, Isaiah 64, 6 being one of the most well-known, 
that clearly states that all of our works of righteousness, all of our, uh, all of our um, tzedakah, all the good deeds that we do are as filthy rags. Just a really clear statement from Scripture. Nothing we can do measures up to God's standard of, of, uh, of righteousness. And so if we can't do anything to be saved, we have to rely exclusively on the work of someone else. And that reliance upon someone else is, is trust. It's accepting that. It is believing that they are uh, the one who can save us. And when anything is added to that, then what we're saying is the belief that what this other person has done isn't enough. We have to add to it. So that completely dilutes and destroys uh, the faith. But there are those who say, well, if it's true faith, you have a couple of different issues in faith. One is there are those who say if that make a distinction between faith and saving faith, that the kind of faith it saves is different from the kind of faith that uh, that you have in everyday life. Except I, you want to wonder, where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible clarify that when it uses the terms believe and faith, that it means something other than what the average person on the street who's hearing the common language of Greek, the Koine Greek, who would hear it differently and say, oh, I know that, that faith they're talking about isn't the same kind of faith I talk about day in and day out. Where would they get the idea that it's a somehow a different, different kind of faith? And there's a couple of different places that people go in the scriptures to try to, uh, try to, try to defend this. And one of those is this passage here with the salvation and the belief of, uh, Simon called Simon Magus. And the statement in verse 13 that Simon himself also believed. Now, just to uh, remind you where we are, uh, Philip has gone north to Samaria, which is just radical. I mean, this, this is one of the most radical, revolutionary, socially revolutionary things that could take place because of the hatred and animosity and enmity that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. It wasn't just cultural differences. It wasn't just an ethnic difference, but they had centuries of hostility toward one another, not unlike uh, the the situation with the so-called Palestinians today, the Arabs who live uh, in, um, in the land of Israel. These, uh, there, there's this tremendous hostility, and what Philip has recognized is that Jesus Christ has died for everyone. That means that as Christians, there's no basis for any kind of, of prejudice or uh, any kind of ethnic bias or cultural bias in giving, giving out the gospel. And I think that's an important principle for us to start thinking about individually because we live... Uh, a report came out this last week that I read that, te- that Houston is the most culturally and ethnically diverse city in the country. And that's happened in 25 years. It's the most ethnically and culturally diverse city in this country. And if you just look at the, the statistics, and I'm, I, I don't remember what they are precisely, but I know that I think it's still a little less than 50% of the people who live in, in Houston, I'm not talking about Harris County, just the city of Houston, that a little bit less than 50% are Hispanic of some some kind. And then you have about, um, uh, I think it's fewer than 30% are Caucasian. And the rest are, there's about... I think it's about 18 or 19% black, and then the rest is Asian, Indian, whatever, different, different, uh, uh, different things. We have the only city in the world that has more Koreans than Houston is Seoul. And if you drive down Long Point over here between Gessner and, and uh, Blaylock, there are five large Korean churches and uh, I'm not sure, there may be only four on Long Point, but there's one about two blocks back in the neighborhood just north of there. And there's Buku Korean restaurants. 
that is like the heart of Koreatown here in Houston. And you have shopping areas on Westview and Blaylock where there's a huge Korean-owned uh, grocery store, H-Mart. It's got some of the freshest fish in town. And uh, then the shopping area across the street from that is also owned uh, by Koreans. And there's a, I heard it was Vietnamese originally, but it might also be Korean, the ranch market down there on, on Blaylock and I-10. So we have this huge, enormous uh, Korean community. We have a huge Arab community here, and a lot of, and some of it is radicalized. We have one of the most radical segments of the Muslim community in the U.S. here in Houston, and I've heard that from uh, numerous sources. I've he heard it from a congressman. I heard it from a friend of mine who was a former liaison between HPD and the FBI. Um, uh, anti-terrorism task force, and uh, so we need to be aware of these things. There's a new, new mosque. I was driving with a friend of mine down um, uh, Allen Parkway, down there by the Federal Reserve Bank, and there's this huge plot of land down there um, that is all vacant now, and that's supposed that's to be a mosque there, and it's going to be one of the it's going to be the largest mosque in the U.S. We don't need to have a missions plan to take the gospel to the world. The world has come to us. And sometimes we sit around in, um, in church and we talk about, well, you know, not too many people seem to be interested in the word. And, and yet we have opportunities to take the word to all kinds of people in this country, uh, to, to people who are, you know, cutting your grass, working in your garden, uh, and, uh, working on your car. I know that um, the guy who works on my car, Connie, found him. Great guy, great mechanic. I'll tell you about him later, Hispanic. And he came one night to the pastor's conference. Uh, we got him to uh, uh, come over here one night, super guy. And uh, it just constantly we need to be reaching out into into uh, the minority community. And because and, it's everywhere. We're, I'm, actually, if you're like us and you're white, um, southern, middle class, you're, we're the minority. So we need to be reaching out. That's our mission field. It's a huge mission field. And we need to be actively engaged, thinking about opportunities of people who are sacking the groceries at the grocery store, uh, people who are working in your yard, people who you run into on a day-to-day -day basis, working at the cleaners, er everywhere. There are just all, all kinds of opportunities to give the gospel to people. And we need to be thinking about that and, in, and, and encouraging that. And who knows what that will produce. Uh, I'm not one to start building programs. I, I learned, watched and learned a big lesson when Spring Branch Community Church was down here on Long Point. I don't know how many of you all are familiar with Spring Branch Community Church. Spring Branch Community Church was founded along with uh, Minitex and uh, uh, Pierce Junction. These were Bible churches that were started like right around the World War One era, mid 19 teens in Houston, and they were they later came under the uh, influence. I mean, that was before Dallas Seminary was started. They came under the influence of, of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary professors, and were were the anchor along with Baraka Church in Houston of the solid Bible teaching church, Minitex. Now I think it's Pearland, uh, Fellowship Bible Church of Pearland. Um, Pierce Junction became Almeda Bible Church, and now it's something else down on that uh, down on that south side. Spring Branch sold their property about three or four years ago, and they're now Bridgepoint uh, Bible Church out here on just past Eldridge on on I-10. So all of those churches have moved around, but Spring Branch had a vision. They had some guys in there leadership over there in the 70s that started seeing this uh, ethnic shift taking place in, in the Spring Branch area. And they said, we really need to target uh, the minorities. We need to target the, the Hispanics, and we need to target the blacks, and we need to target the Asians. And they, you know, orchestrated and organized and trained and sent out teams into all these apartments, and a lot of these apartments that went Title IX or whatever, and they worked, and and they had a number of conversions, which is great. They had um, a few people showed up and went to church. But inevitably, blacks like to worship according to their culture. Koreans like to worship according to their culture. 
etc., etc., and nobody stu- stuck. And so finally they decided, well, I guess it took them 30 years to make the decision that we're, I guess we're white and we're going to stay white, and they moved out a little further, uh, d- took a little more white flight. It used to be back in the 70s, Spring Branch was where flight white, white flight went, <laughs> was to Spring Branch. And now, uh, now it's not. But, but we, that the purpose for evangelism is not church growth. I think that's a flaw that some churches get into. We're not supposed to be involved in, in evangelism for the uh, hidden agenda of building this church. We're supposed to be going out and witnessing uh, to everyone without regard to whatever their cultural background or anything else might be, uh, and whatever animosity there there might be. And I know for a lot of people there's a lot of animosity towards Islam, Muslims, and the Arab community. But that community is also ripe for evangelism. In fact, in I have been reading in the Voice of the Martyrs over the last several years that one of the uh, areas in the world with the greatest conversion rates is, uh, in, his, in terms of historical comparison, is in Iran uh, the, because of all that's going on over there. Huge numbers, comparatively speaking, are converting from Islam to, to Christianity. So we need to be personally focused on evangelism, and that is what Philip is doing. He goes north to Samaria. And as I pointed out, the text says he went to a city in Samaria. It doesn't state which one. It was probably not Sebast because that was a Roman colony that was uh, primarily uh, Roman, clearly Gentile. Now, several people have asked me, well, what were the Samaritans? Were they Jew or Gentile? I don't know. Only God knows that. There's such a debate in the Jewish community over what makes a Jew a Jew. There are those that say the line goes through the mother, and many Christians think, looking at Mary, that Jesus is fully Jewish because he's born of a virgin, and the line would go through the mother. Uh, I've heard that argument. I've heard the argument that, well, it's biblically it's through the father because all the genealogies go through the father with a couple of exceptions. Actually, I think in the scriptures it's it's probably either mother or father and uh, would, would determine it biologically. I have uh, <clears throat> some uh, acquaintances, friends here in Houston, Jewish friends who have a DNA testing business. And one of the things that many people do coming to them is to trying to find out if they have any kind of uh, Jewish roots in their DNA. And what I've learned from them is that they can take a person's DNA and they can follow the male track, the male track and the female track back generations. And one of the things they said, I was asking this question about, well, what, what make, where does the line go? And they said, in, um, in, in, in the DNA line, if you're Jewish, the line is, is almost 90% east, uh, <clears throat> Near Eastern or Middle Eastern uh, DNA all the way back through the male lines, all the way back for, for centuries and centuries. But on the female lines, it's it's anything. It goes all over the place. Why? The reason is because Jewish traders, Jewish merchants, Jewish peddlers traveled. They would leave Israel. They went on the diaspora. They go to Libya. They went to Rome. They went somewhere. They married some Gentile uh, girl, converted her to Judaism, and now they're having children that are that are Jews. And so the male line remains almost almost ninety percent pure. Whereas the, the female or the matrilineal line uh, is a is a mix of all kinds of different uh, uh, different ethnicities, so that's kind of an interesting uh, little fact. And when I've talked to rabbis, I, and, and there's a huge debate over this because they they get the Ethiopians uh, coming in. Are they really Jewish? They get Indians. They have co- communities they've discovered in China and India and other places that are um, that have all these Jewish traditions. They look Chinese, they, but they have all Jewish, they, they observe the Sabbath, they have a Torah, they talk about the temple, they have all, all the feast days, everything. Read from the, from the Pentateuch. They've been isolated for generations and generations. They look Chinese, but they're, they claim to be Jewish. So how do you discern this? So I, I don't know the answer to the question, are the Samaritans Jew or Gentile? 
They are a mix. And I think that they were considered, although the Jews did not like to accept them as Jews, uh, Scripture treats them as Jewish, not as Gentile. And so for that reason, the Scripture doesn't make an issue of the Gentile conversion until Peter takes the gospel to the Roman centurion uh, Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11. So we read that uh, Peter went down to, the, to a city in Samaria and uh, uh, preached or proclaimed Christ to them. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing, and I think that would be a, a temporal participle, when they heard and saw the miracles that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and we studied the whole issue of demon possession versus demon influence. The demon possession is when a demon, who is a fallen angel, takes up residence inside the body of a person, controlling their their physical actions. Demon influence is what every uh, human being is under at one time or another because it is the thought system, the arrogant thought system of Satan that is, has affinity with our own arrogant uh, sin nature. And in James 4, 4 talks about the wisdom, uh, the, the wisdom that is opposite biblical wisdom is earthly, natural, and demonic. So when you're thinking according to human viewpoint or worldliness, you're thinking under demonic influence. And that happens every time we're out of fellowship, thinking on the basis of our sin nature, we're under demonic influence. The result was when they cast out demons, the lame were healed, uh, there was great joy in the city. Now we're going to talk about a specific individual by the name of Simon. There was a certain man called Simon. He's very well known in, in the city. He is uh, probably... Uh, infamous throughout Samaria. He, it says here, he, pre- he previously practiced sorcery in the city. So he had been practicing sorcery in the city for a while, and uh, we'll get into the terminology for that in just a minute. And he uh, uh, practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone Great. Now, that's a really loaded phrase. He was basically, we'll see in a minute, he was basically claiming to be the incarnation of God. He was, it was a form of competition with Jesus. He doesn't know about Jesus, but he's, he's using that kind of terminology. And everybody listened to him. Verse 10, to whom all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Now, in the last couple of weeks, when I've talked about demon possession and demon influence, last time we talked about fallen angels and where they came from and the different categories of fallen angels. And this evening, I want to briefly talk about some of the avenues to demonism. Now, I would categorize demonism in two different ways. You would have what I call passive demon influence. Passive demon influence, which is the influence of demonic thought, satanic thought, through the world system of thinking, through the various philosophies and religions of the world system. And that would be more of a passive or indirect demonic influence. And then there would be a more uh, active demonic influence when a person is uh, intentionally and volitionally pursuing uh, activities that he knows involves them in the occult or in demonic activity. The term occult is a word that at its core meaning is refers to something that is hidden, uh, something that is that is not seen, and so it is comes to apply to a certain kind of knowledge, a hidden knowledge or a secret knowledge, and so it's a word that was often associated with Gnosticism. Gnosticism has that same kind of idea that if you really want health and happiness, you just have to latch on to a special formula uh, secretly, uh, a secret doctrine, and then you will you will be able to uh, uh, to have that. As a uh, <clears throat> in, in its technical application, the word occult has come to refer to uh, supernatural or magical powers, not magical powers like David Copperfield has, but magical powers like Satan has, uh, where they are tapping into true supernatural beings. And there's a book, I meant to grab this out of the library, 
There's a book in our library, and I saw it uh, Saturday. It's if you walk in the door and walk all the way to the back wall on the right-hand side, the top shelf, there's a book on supernatural powers by Danny Corum and somebody else. Danny Corum was a magician who worked for years with Campus Crusade for Christ. And he did a lot of uh, things where he was exposing the, the fraudulent seances and uh, necromancy, all this other kind of uh, stuff that was really just just trickery. It didn't have anything to do with, with the occult. And he and I uh, spent a lot of time on a couple of conversations when I was researching this about 25 years ago. Uh, and he gave me a lot of different examples of things that he had seen that you would think People would think if they didn't know what was going on, they you would swear that that there was something demonic or supernatural going on, uh, but there wasn't. It was all done through smoke and mirrors, and and I think a lot of people this 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 uh, sucks in a lot of people, especially in the charismatic camp or the healing churches, because they think that people are are really getting healed or any number of other things. And it's just the same kind of smoke and mirrors. And at the time I was investigating some of the things that were going on in the vineyard churches, and he had done a lot of in-depth investigation on that and uh, was uh, basically saying that they were doing the same kind of thing that that he used to do when he was a stage musician, a stage magician rather, and what others do, just it's just trickery, it's just smoke and mirrors and other things, other techniques. And if you know them, then you can, uh, then you can do these things. But the Bible does talk about the fact that there is real, true uh, witchcraft, and there is genuine necromancy where people are—it's uh, not they're not actually contacting the dead, but it involves. It's not just leisure domain and trickery. It involves uh, being in contact with demonic powers. In Deuteronomy 18, there is a very strong prohibition uh, to the Jews against being involved in any kind of occult activity. And, in fact, such involvement was to be punishable by death because it basically would bring a cancer into the community of, uh, into the Jewish community. And so in uh, Deuteronomy 18:11, they're told to uh, <clears throat> completely, the, the preceding that, they're to stay away from anyone uh, who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things, verse 12, all who do these things, oh, excuse me, let me, I didn't get the first part of that. I, I've got 18:9. let me... Uh, let me start with 18.9. It's not on the screen. 18.9. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. And so here the, the Jews were coming into the Canaanite land, and the Canaanites were practicing all of these things. They were part of their religion. Remember last time we looked at passages that talked about the fact that they were worshiping, uh, when they were worshiping idols, they were worshiping demons. And so it was a demonic culture. This was why God was authorizing the annihilation of the of the um, of the Canaanites. Every man, woman, and child is that they had become a a malignant uh, sore on the body of humanity to the degree God had given them four hundred over four hundred years since the time of Abraham to turn to Him, and they continue to become more and more perverse. And so now it was time for judgment in a similar way. Now, all I'm saying is in a similar way. I don't, I'm not saying it was right, wrong. I'm not making those judgments. In a similar way, the Native American, in other words, the if you're not politically correct, the American Indian population here in North America was similarly debauched and perverse and demonic. And it was, um, uh, for example, in Mexico with the, uh, with the Aztecs, and they had human sacrifices. The reason when Cortez came up from, uh, from the Gulf and marched on Mexico City, he was able to, he, he didn't have that many uh, Spaniards with him. He was able to, uh, increase his army size tenfold against the Aztecs because the Aztecs had made enemies of every every uh, 
Indian tribe in Mexico because they would go out in, in war, they would capture uh, prisoners and take them back, and they would sacrifice them uh, on the temples in, uh, in Mexico City. So they were cannibalistic, they were demonic, All of, they committed human sacrifice, and this was true of a lot of the uh, tribes that were up in the Ohio uh, River Valley area. And the, the stories and the things that I've read historical accounts on this that uh, were just unbelievable. You cannot imagine the horrors. That's why uh, the early settlers uh, in that area, when there were these Indian wars, first under Pontiac back in the 1770s and 80s and later under Tecumseh and others in between, as they, they, that's when the phrase first came out, the only good Indian is a dead Indian because of the torture and the rape and the murder and, and the demonic things that went on uh, when they would take their prisoners back and they would ritually sacrifice them and all of these horrible things that went on. They were not, you know, the Rousseauian, wonderful, uh, wonderful native living in uh, some sort of pristine innocence. They were deeply and profoundly demonic and violent and involved in all of these things. And that's why when when the uh, uh, original uh, settlers, the Puritans, uh, and all the Christians who came here instantly made a connection between the, the uh, Indians here and the Canaanites is because they didn't see any difference in their belief systems or behavior. And today that is extremely unpopular and it's not politically correct. And if, I, if anybody with uh, NBC, especially NBC or CBS or ABC or CNN, found a pa- out a pastor who said something like that, I would get crucified on the news. But it's historically accurate if you read the, if you go back and read the original journal accounts from the settlers at that, that, at that time. I mean, just hor- hor- horrific stuff. Um, so in Deuteronomy 18, they're, <clears throat> uh, they're prohibited from having any practices like the Canaanites. And in 18.10, God says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. That's live human sacrifice, live infant human sacrifice. And that was part of what they were doing are one who practices witchcraft. And the word for witchcraft here is the Hebrew word anon, uh, which basically has to do with reading signs or doing some kind of, uh, of divination. And uh, practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, and this is a little bit uh, different word. It's the Hebrew word kesem, which has to do with fortune-telling or divination. So it's a, another form of that. Practices witchcraft, a soothsayer, one who interprets omens. This would be like hepatoscopy when they are, um, uh, when they would cut out the, the uh, liver of an animal and then they would cut it open and then they would read the or- organs of the animal, read the liver in order to uh, tell the future. They did other things where they would uh, shake up arrows, like casting lots, shake up arrows, cast them on the ground, read the fortune. Any kind of astrology falls uh, into this particular category. It's all part of uh, being a sorcerer or a witchcraft. And then uh, verse 11, God says, Or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. So you see those six sins over in Proverbs, those aren't the only thing God abominates. These are abominations to the Lord, and the Lord your God drives them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. This is given as a reason or cause for the reason they are to be annihilated is because they listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, uh, uh, Moses says, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Now, this just leads into the passage talking about the prophets and how to tell a true prophet from a false prophet and that one great prophet, unique prophet, would come in the future, which which would be the Messiah. Now, there are other passages in the scriptures that talk about different uh, practices of divination. We have several examples in Daniel with the Magi. 
The Magi, as I pointed out last time, was a Median tribe. There were the Medes and the Persians, and one of the Median tribes were called the Magi, and they specialized in astrology and fortune-telling. This gave them, eventually gave them a rise to power so that by the time of the Parthian Empire, they were the, they were the clique that selected who would be the next king. That's why when the Magi showed up in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth and asked Herod who the, uh, uh, who the king, where the king of the Jews was and it wasn't Herod, he was scared to death. He was already paranoid because the Parthians had conquered, uh, uh, Judea when he first, be- right after he first became king and he had to run for his life and he escaped to Egypt and Cleopatra got him to, got him to Rome. And then he was able to get an army from Rome to back him, and he went back uh, to, Gia, to Judea and defeated the Parthians. But he's been afraid of some sort of conspiracy between the Jewish aristocracy and the Parthians to overthrow him ever since. So when these Parthian kingmakers show up on his doorstep wanting to know where the king of the Jews is, and it's not him, he, he, he goes ballistic. And so he finds out where this baby was supposed to be born, and then he slaughters all the babies in that town. That's his motivation for that. He don't, it wasn't just an evil king who decided, oh, I'm going to go kill all the babies. This guy is paranoid to the max towards the Parthians, and they've just scared him to death, so he thinks he's fighting for his life. I'm not trying to justify his action. I'm just trying to give it a little greater, under, give us a little greater appreciation for what was actually going on. In Ezekiel 21, 21, we're told about uh, the practice of the king of Babylon. He stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. That's uh, imagery at the beginning. He's he's trying to make a decision. He's standing at the fork in the road. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go to Texas A&M, the University of Texas, or somewhere else? He's got a decision to make. And so he shakes the arrows, he consults the images, and he, or the teraphim, and he looks at the liver. So this was common practice for decision-making in the ancient world. The magicians were quite powerful in their own right, uh, whether or not they were, had, uh, uh, were tapping into demonic power, we don't know. I believe that the wise men in Egypt definitely were, and they could imitate a certain number of the plagues that, uh, that Moses brought upon the Egyptians. And that's seen in passages like uh, Exodus 7.11 and 7.22, where the magicians uh, basically copied, counterfeited whatever Moses did. But by the time you get to the later plagues in Exodus 8.18 and uh, 9.11, they could not duplicate the plague of the vermin or the lice, and they could not duplicate the plague of the boils. So they could only go so far. Satan's power is always going to be limited by God. And if you, somebody was involved with the witchcraft, the penalty was death. Exodus 22:18. you shall not permit a sorceress to live. So Simon's this sorcerer. Uh, practice sorcery, which is the verb that is formed on the word for magi. It's maguo. And it means basically at that time to just practice magic. Now, whether he was just practicing a very sophisticated uh, leisure domain uh, or whether he was involved in some kind of demonic connection, we don't know. I would suggest based on what we're seeing in the text, he's probably just a, a good trickster. The other word that's used in Scripture for sorcery is that we find in the list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, uh, 17 or 18, is pharmakeia. Uh, not that being a pharmacist is being a sorcerer, but that it is the use of certain kinds of drugs to bring about uh, mind control, hallucinate, uh, get in touch with the uh, demonic side. But then we're told that Simon himself also believed. Now that's just that's that's the text. Simon believed, and when he was baptized, so his belief. Isn't any different from anybody else's belief, and Philip doesn't see him as being any different from anybody else, even though he's this well-known sorcerer. Uh, he was baptized. He continued with Philip, and he's amazed when he sees the miracles and the signs that are done because it's not like anything he ever did. Now, the purpose for signs and wonders 
is to give convicting evidence of the truth of the message. Uh, The whole Gospel of John is written around the signs, as I pointed out last time. In Acts 2.22, we read uh, that Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God uh, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, there's nothing wrong with pointing out the miracles that Jesus did or coming to faith on the basis of, 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 those, of those miracles. They were part of the signs of an, of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, the only ones other than the 11 that performed miracles were Philip and Stephen. And that's because they were apostolic associates. It's a unique role that applied to those who were those chosen in uh, Acts 6. Now, when it comes to belief, I think we ought to pay attention to how the word believe is used in Acts. It's very interesting. Is there any basis on how the word belief is used in Acts for saying that there can be a kind of belief in the gospel that doesn't get you saved? That's what we want to do. Just look at a few uh, examples. In Acts 2.44, after Peter has uh, preached the gospel there on the day of Pentecost and uh, 3,000 believed, we're told now all who believed, not most who believed, but there were some who had a false belief and so they weren't really saved. They didn't accept the lordship of Jesus, so they weren't saved. Uh, They just had a pseudo-belief doesn't say that all who believed were together. Now, the Lordship guy is going to come back at you and say, see, all, that was all genuine belief. So all who genuinely believed, they want to read some sort of adverb uh, into the sentence. All who truly believed, all who genuinely believed. And you'll be amazed, and I've been amazed as I went back and was reading some different things the last few weeks on this, how people slip that adverb in there. Now, these are the ones who truly believed in the gospel. Wait a minute, the Bible never says truly believed, genuinely believed uh, the gospel. It just talks about those who believed. Acts 4.4, however, many of those who heard the word believed. Many believed, some didn't. Many believed. The number of the men came to about 4,000. Also in Acts 4.32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So again and again, it's, it's simply belief in the message that Jesus is the Messiah and no qualifying factor. It's not believe and get right with the Lord, not believe and go to Bible class every night, not believe and, um, and give their money. It's just belief, nothing else. Acts 5.14, and believers were increasingly added to, uh, added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women being added to the Lord is added to the body of Christ. Acts 8.12 in this passage, when they believed Philip as he preached the things. That's all they did. They just believed and they're saved. And then Simon himself also believed. Look at the conjunction of those two verses. The, Luke is not distinguishing Simon in any way at all from the rest of those who believed in terms of his belief. In Acts 9.26, uh, Saul is out to get all the, believe, uh, all the believers and um, uh, after, his, uh, uh, after his conversion, when he becomes uh, more known as the Apostle Paul, in verse 42, it became known, that is, his conversion became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed, uh, believed on the Lord. That's all there was to it. Acts 10, 43 and 45, dealing with the Gentiles, Cornelius. Uh, to him all the prophets uh, witnessed that through his name, this is Peter speaking, uh, through his name, whoever believes in him, that is in Christ, will receive remission of sins. Notice, he doesn't say those th- those who believe in him for eternal life. That was that uh, uh, aberration that came out from GES a few years ago where they said if you just present the gospel as believing in Christ for forgiveness of sins, that's not enough. You, the only thing message of Jesus was to believe in him for eternal life. And they got that from the Gospel of John. But here, Peter in Acts 10 is not talking about eternal life. He's saying believe for remission of sins. 
Uh, Acts, uh, I'm skipping some here. Acts 13:12. the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done. Once again, his belief was based on signs, but it's not an inadequate belief. Uh, Acts 13:39. by him, everyone who believes is justified. Everyone who believes, not everyone who believes sincerely, genuinely believes with a commitment to the Lordship of Christ. So we can just go on and on. But that's, that's how you establish this is you go through and you look at how the word believe is used and nowhere is there a qualifier. So when we look at what happens here with Simon, it says Simon believed when he was, and, and he continued with Philip. But see, after this, he's going to fall. So people say, ah, oh, see, it wasn't a genuine faith. And then there's a Simon Magus that shows up a hundred years later in church history that is the, uh, a progenitor of Gnosticism. And all of these Gnostic miracles and teaching is attributed to him, but we don't know if that's a legend that's just as picked up this name or, or anything, any, anything about it, but people will say, see, how can you be a false teacher like that and still be saved? It's easy because getting saved doesn't mean you're always going to behave the way you should be, behave. And when, um, when we read in here, I just want to wrap up with this, when we read in here about him that he, um, they called him, the, this man is the great power of God, uh, the Aramaic word hila, which is word for the power, was a word that the Samaritans often used as a substitute for God. It was what's called a circumlocution. Instead of saying the word God, they would say hela, power. And so uh, the, the name of God was often said to be, they would make statements like great is the great power. And so when you look at that sentence at the end of uh, Acts 8.10, this man is, it should be punctuated as this man is, quote, the great power of God. And that term, the great power of God, was a term for the one who was the expression of God uh, in the Old Testament. It was used to denote an angel. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is distinct from Yahweh, but both are fully divine. The angel of the Lord, in almost all cases, is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. And so they have this background. It's real fuzzy, but the idea that there's an angelic representation of God was one they called the great power of God, and they're assigning that name to Simon. So Simon is is sort of claiming messianic, uh, sort of has a pretension to messianic claims here. And, but he comes in contact with the real Messiah, Jesus Christ, and trusts in him. Now he's converted, he trusts in Christ, and then when he sees what happens when Peter and John come and the Holy Spirit baptizes them, the Holy Spirit descends and baptizes them, he wants to buy that power. That's where we get the term simony. It's a term that developed in the Middle Ages for those who wanted to purchase church offices. And so they would be guilty of simony wanting to buy the grace of God. Uh, so we'll get into that next time when we get into the next section, which deals with the inclusion of the Samaritan believers into the body of Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be encouraged uh, by them, to see how you have worked uh, throughout history, to understand that that there is an alternate power in the universe that is not as great as you but is evil and that the only protection is when we trust Christ and when we uh, walk in the light of your word and walk in fellowship. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement before you turn off the live streaming. Next week will be, uh, I'll be in Israel. I appreciate your prayers on the trip. Uh, they'll be showing videos of the next couple of lessons in Jude. Now, I understand that people think this is a day off. It's not. I'm putting a lot of work into those Jude lessons, and, uh, and people need to be here. Also, when I'm, uh, when I'm gone on the tour group, Later in June, the first week I'm gone on that Tuesday and Thursday night, Jim Myers will be here, and Jim Myers will be teaching on Tuesday 
and Thursday night, and we need to make sure that uh, that we're here and not uh, taking a vacation because the pastor's not here. Too often people get the idea that, well, the pastor's not there, so I, I get a free night. No, you don't. Your spiritual life doesn't get a day off, and you need to be here. And uh, there's some great material in the Jude lesson. There's some great material that I haven't taught here in any other place. So you need to be here for those uh, for those Jude lessons. See you all Thursday night.